for a capitalistic market to be optimally efficient, you would want as little barriers to entry to industries as possible so that you can encourage as much competition as possible because theoretically, if you have zero barriers to entry, you enable competition to grow and compete. And as we see from professional sports, for example, that competition begets quality. Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Back a little while ago, Spotify IPO'd, and as our economy develops, regular little people are actually getting, in my opinion, getting a better and better access to opportunity. And I say that because in the whole IPO realm, there's been a traditional good old boys club. In the case of Spotify, they went a non-traditional route in March when they IPO'd because they didn't go the good old boys route, IPOing through an investment bank, but rather they literally handled the whole process themselves. That's very unconventional and was talked about just because of that. So just to explain a little bit more again, historically, companies would go to investment banks, ask them to help with their IPO process, and it would cost them millions of dollars. Obviously, if you think about like the little guy trying to start a business and then eventually sell shares to the public and get their name out there, that's really prohibitive. So... I wanted to bring my fellow market enthusiast and investor, Stephen Ngao, back onto the show. So welcome back. Hey, Dallas. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me again. I just wanted to get your opinion, Stephen, on the whole IPO process and Spotify kind of going their own route. What were your thoughts on the situation? Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm a big fan of Spotify, just kind of how like the look and feel of the app is and how they kind of have these intuitive playlists to the the listener, they're a leader in terms of the, the the music streaming industry, or at least the music streaming business of the music industry. And last year was the first time that music streaming took a lion's share of global music sales. So when I heard news, when I caught wind about the IPO, as a personal consumer, I was excited. The millennial cohort is is at that kind of like age of participation in the workforce, and so. This last year or so has kind of been interesting where you're seeing those millennial influence companies like the Spotify, the Netflix, or the Dropbox even having these kind of catchy trends. But I think Spotify has a lot of opportunity for growth, specifically because mobile technology is becoming more prevalent. And so it makes it more of a fluid transition for their business model to be more robust. I'm also kind of concerned because Part of the reason why they went straight, why they performed the direct listing was to give to give an opportunity for the music labels to buy in and buy ownership because that's actually one oh, of the- Oh, really? I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. Like it's one of their biggest expenses. Like when you have a music streaming business, you have to focus on paying out the artists. And so Spotify classifies artists, the terminology as being rights holders. So they own rights to the music that they create. However, it gets complicated because most mainstream artists, especially within the last 20 years, so most musicians today 
have a deal where the mainstream companies, and there's a big four, Sony, Universal, Warner, EMI, which is based in the UK, and, and several of the independents. But the main, the main three of them, I should say the main three, are Universal Music Group, Sony Music, and Warner Music. So there's a list of different licensees that musicians can receive payments for in terms of royalties. So the, the main one is the masters or the mechanical rights. And that just originates from old school days of when you have a physical copy, when you have a physical press of the actual record. So the music companies, the music labels would actually take ownership of the mechanical rights. And it's the mechanical rights. And if you think about technology today where anybody can access music virtually from anywhere, you have a lot of activity going on in terms of music playing and, and music sponsorship. So record labels have kind of been vigilant against those who are going against the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, which was basically an act signed in the late 90s to help accommodate for the ubiquity of technology. And so Spotify has to pay out record labels and it has exclusive deals with the big four that I mentioned. And one of them, I was doing research on its contract with Sony Music, and it has this clause where it's called the Most Favored Nation Clause, where it's it's a type of clause that guarantees respective music labels, which so in this case, so Sony would be guaranteed a certain level of income or payments for royalties from Spotify, as long as the, the payments are in a competing level with with the other music labels. So if one music label starts to get paid more, then because of this clause, Spotify has to be mindful of that and pay out the the respective music label. So that's my main concern is how can they keep operations sustainable while honoring those type of contracts? And I think one thing that is really going to have a litmus test of that is Tencent Music, which is basically the Chinese version of Spotify, just released that they will be going public and they have exclusive deals with music labels like Sony, for example, and they actually have like a joint venture record label with Sony. So Tencent Music going public is going to be big news because we'll see how Spotify reacts to that. Just talking less specifically about Spotify, but more about the IPO process. Let's take it back to the basics and explain what an IPO is. Oh, okay. So an IPO is an initial public offering. So when you're a publicly traded firm, Traditionally, you have a list of shares, normally under one class, that are eligible to be sold, bought and sold by the public on the open market. So an IPO is the setup to that to that platform. So one of the requirements to, to be publicly traded is you have to, to list your shares to be traded on a stock exchange. So they... Well, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's, before we go into that. So you're saying... The IPO being an initial public offering is referring to the first time ownership in the company is made available to the public. Because obviously, a company has owners before it trades on a stock exchange. Like People start a company and they own it. And you could even sell ownership of your private company to someone else. The difficulty or the problem for the regular person is that if I have 100% ownership of the post money plan and someone else wants access to that, they don't have access to that because they don't know me right, and right. my shares are not traded on an exchange. They're not public. So if I was to get to the point where I wanted to allow access for the regular person, then I could go through the process of listing and, and doing an IPO. Then the regular person could then buy ownership in the post money plan 
and they finally can actually get access. So Spotify doing their IPO was now the first time that the regular average person can just go to an exchange, go through their broker, and now own a part of Spotify, right? That's correct. And further, just to add to that, they issued no new shares, but instead employees from the company were allowed to sell shares. So it's really unique that the, the business model behind the IPO launch. And talking about some of the reasons why a company might want to go public or do an IPO, there's a number of different reasons. I'd say the most common one is raising capital, but, but I think that's actually not accurate because I think most of the time why companies want to list or go public is really just about brand awareness and credibility. Being a publicly traded stock adds a lot of awareness and credibility to your company because in order to be publicly traded, there's financial reporting requirements that are made of companies that are traded publicly. And so you have to disclose your financial statements, basically, and make those transparent to investors so that they can know what it is that they're investing in. And that just adds a lot of transparency and credibility in the general marketplace. But a couple other reasons, like you're saying, you know, if the Spotify employees were some of the sellers to IPO buyers, it kind of explains the other reason why a company might want to go public is to provide an exit for early investors. Right. And sometimes early investors are those employees. So people who got in early and got to watch the growth of the company as they held ownership, and then now they want to move on to something else or just cash in or whatever, then it gives them an opportunity to monetize. Because if a company isn't traded publicly and you own part of it, even if the company grows and does well and the worth of your ownership in that company has gone up a lot, if there's not a liquid market for it where it's not trading in the public domain, then it's still illiquid for you and it's difficult you can't actually cash in on your gains. So right. that can be frustrating for investors. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's like a big thing about being a publicly traded firm. It's a, a market space where there's demand and supply and for every stock sold, there's a stock bought. So yeah, just to add to that, what you said about liquidity could be a big factor. And you can do this with non-public companies, but it becomes easier once you have publicly traded shares to reward employees with stock-based compensation. So instead of just paying your employees in cash or bonuses or whatever, that you can award shares of the stock. And that way, the employees are additionally incentivized to perform well for the company because if the company does well, then they gain more from their investment that they were rewarded with. Yeah, like oftentimes you'll hear about executives getting certain back-end deals in terms of like stock options or classified shares and things of that nature. I think it's thought of less commonly, but it actually also provides a company with another form of currency almost in order to do like acquisitions, for example. Because when a company wants to let's say, buy out smaller competition or just like build the business or whatever, they can buy things with cash or they can borrow money and essentially issue debt to finance an acquisition or a purchase or an investment, whatever. But a, 
A third way is to just give up ownership of the company. So to sell shares of stock, and then that raises money. So sometimes when companies are doing acquisitions, they'll actually do a stock purchase. They might buy out a company in exchange for shares of other stock, and they don't even have to spend any cash doing that. Now, that doesn't mean it's free, but it's just, like I say, like another quote-unquote currency. Combination of capital. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking to your point, Dallas, I was reading something on TechCrunch where it listed Spotify having about a billion in cash and securities, although it has no debt since it converted that into equity for investors. So like Spotify is saying there's like a list of reasons why they wanted to go the unconventional IPO or just like the direct listing. So listing without selling shares, which I think we discussed is there won't be any additional shares outstanding listed. All shares that are sold, bought and sold have already been owned internally within employees of the company. Liquidity. So it gives them, like you're saying, another form of pseudo currency or like another form of currency where they can add another dimension to They've been actually, they've been on a, a streak of buying out companies, AI firms and, and all these like niche companies to help improve their data analytics in terms of how they build playlists. So that adds a level, another layer of how they invest and bankers actually won't get preferred access, but when they performed the underwriting, there wasn't any limit in terms of how many shares they could float or allocation for a certain level of shares or no one got preferential treatment. It was just fair and it was transparent, which I think speaks to what you had mentioned earlier about improving brand awareness. A lot of times, maybe not necessarily in the IPO process, because that's the first time that investors are starting to buy into the company, but maybe later on when a company's issuing additional shares or something like that, is that companies can kind of do financial alchemy and screw over shareholders sometimes by issuing multiple classes of shares or converting classes into different classes. Like when Snapchat IPO'd, they actually issued shares that I think have no voting rights, which is a a key feature of owning part of a company. That is actually, I didn't know that, but I've actually been curious about that because like the nuances, you're right, because certain shares, one class could have voting rights and one can't, but it's really up to the discretion of the corporation. So. That's a good point. I didn't know that about Snapchat. But I guess whatever someone's willing to buy or whatever conditions someone's willing to accept in a transaction, then they'll do it. I mean, I guess in the case of Snapchat, the appetite was just so high for people to buy into the stock that they're like, oh, okay, I don't even care Uh that I don't get voting rights. But yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so just to give a little explanation on the traditional method of how IPOs happen, just to juxtapose that against what Spotify did, banks are usually facilitating the process. So the banks will come to a company that they know is intending to IPO, and they'll pitch the company to attract their business so that they can win the right to be their IPO broker, essentially. You're talking about investment banks, right? Not retail? Yeah, investment banks. And so the investment banks will then, after they are awarded the IPO facilitator role by the company that is intending to IPO, then that investment bank is going to go out and do their due diligence on the company to gather all the info they need and coordinate with management 
all that kind of stuff to eventually put together an S1 registration statement, a financial statement that is a disclosure that has to be re- filed SEC. with S- SEC. And that's going to have all the important company data, including their financials. This is like the first time that they're releasing to the public all this important financial information on their company. So when Spotify did that, Spotify was doing that themselves instead of the investment bank doing it for them. And then this is like the first time that a lot of people are learning some inside information about Spotify. But in the normal process, the investment bank is doing this for the company. And then afterwards, the investment bank will issue what's called a red herring. That is just like kind of like a a marketing version of the registration statement that gets sent out to potential early investors, like institutional investors, you know, like the big mutual funds and, and people like that to drum up appetite so that they say like, all right, we're going to be coming out with Spotify stock that is going to be IPOing. You want to get in on an allocation and, and would you like 10,000 shares? So the red herring is, is kind of like, it's like you're auctioning off the, like a price, right? Just trying to get the bid up. Well, no, no, no. Actually, that's kind of like a, a tricky thing because it's in a um, preliminary stage where they're not actually selling it yet. They're just drumming up the appetite because they're not allowed. There's a timeline that has to do with when a company files the S1 until they can actually sell to the public. So there's like a time period and the red herring usually goes out before they can officially sell. And then they have to wait until a certain period of time has passed. You know, that actually, that tees up with what I, so I'm taking a business law class right now and we're studying corporation law and and how to incorporate a business. The professor talked about not when an IPO is underway, but when a business association is looking to incorporate and it's uh, recruiting after shareholders, potential shareholders. So with what you just described about the red herring process, it's all preliminary. Like it's not an official sale. So our professor is talking about in the role that what you just explained about the IPO, the role that a party would play in terms of finding potential shareholders when a company or when someone is looking to incorporate would be a promoter. So from my perspective, as the promoter, you're fielding out requests to see who's interested in an allocation of shares. However, when a promoter finds someone who is interested, there's no contract. The contract does not take place until everything is final, like when the incorporation takes place. Instead, there's an offer. So an offer can be rescinded, but a contract can be enforced. So think of it like the offer comes before the contract, because essentially it does. So the promoter would seek after a list of or an array of different folks who have offers for or a set amount of shares of such company or potential company. So I think that translates to what you just said. Well, it's basically they're teeing up the golf ball, but they're not hitting it yet. So okay. once they do that, they'll actually go on a roadshow to follow up the red herring to then talk to potential buyers, the institutional buyers. They'll go and they'll be talking to like Fidelity and Vanguard and whoever else who would be potentially buying big blocks of shares of this company and again, be like drumming up the the appetite. So then those institutional investors will either say like, yeah, I want in, I want a, a certain allocation, or they say, no, we're not interested. 
And then that investment bank would be queuing up the order books to see like how many shares are desired. Then they can get an indication of like what price they can be setting for the IPO. The crazy thing about this though, to me, is that the industry standard for how much they charge for an IPO is 3 to 7% commission on the sale amount. 3 to 7% of whatever the IPO is. So it, like for example, Spotify IPOing at $20 billion, a 1% commission would be 200 million. A 3% commission because I said the industry standard is 3 to 7%, a 3% commission would be $600 million. I see what you're saying. It's, it's pretty significant. But uh, just as a point of clarification, usually a company doesn't IPO 100% of the stock. So like Spotify didn't actually IPO the full $20 right. billion, So it wouldn't have been that high in commission. But anyway, the point that I'm making is that Spotify saved themselves a ton of money, potentially, by not using an investment bank for the process. The concern comes in, or why companies would not normally do that, is that they really care about the price that they IPO at. Because normally, if a company did everything themselves and nobody knows about the company, then the investment bank isn't there drumming up the appetite with institutional investors. So if the investment bank isn't going out to institutional investors to garner their interest in the stock that's IPOing, then maybe when they IPO, the IPO price is very low because no one is interested because no one's heard about it. Therefore, they don't raise very much money from their IPO, which nobody wants. So the traditional line of thinking is that by using the investment bank, they get a better price for their IPO. So they opened at 158. Yeah, so about $160 per share on April 3rd when they went public. And the last stock price close is $155 a share. So there's not really much volatility. The steepest drop it's been was like to $137, which is like a day after its initial trading. Yeah, so it started trading at about $165 a share. And here we are like three weeks, almost a month later, and it's right around 155 So it's gone down a little bit, but not much. Been pretty stable. Yeah. I, I like using Spotify. But yeah, no, I think Spotify has a strong opportunity. Just the way the music industry is going, more people are streaming. It's becoming more fluid. So as long as they can have a better negotiation with the contractual obligations with the different record labels. And that's another thing too, is they're trying to become more of an in-house vertical integration where they're working with independent artists. This could be a big changer because you have more independent artists who are cognizant of the fact that it's important to not only own your performance rights, but you also need to own your master's rights. So when you make a song, you get paid that full dollar, you know, instead of if you're signed to a major label today, you could probably see maybe 30 cents of the dollar if you're lucky from the mechanical rights. I mean, they, they won't really touch because technically they don't have an opportunity to, to touch performance rights because that's based on performance of the artist. But when it comes to mechanical rights, a lot of music streaming companies negotiate deals with the music labels because that's just the way the business is done right now. And if you don't, then you'd be subject to copyright infringement. This is a bit of a segue, but it's also one of the reasons why a lot of artists are upset with YouTube 
because they found a way to kind of, it's a legal loophole where they don't really pay handsome royalties to artists compared to companies like Apple or Spotify. But you can more than likely find a lot of musical content on YouTube, whether it's professional artists or personal or amateurs, what have you. So what do you think about Spotify doing their own IPO, what that would mean for their future or how that would have affected their future versus if they went the traditional route? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe it's just too early to tell right now, but maybe if they went the traditional route, they would probably, they would have had a strong start, but I think they have like over a hundred close to 150 million uh, subscribers, but they have 70 million, at least 70 million paid subscribers. So that's also a factor too, is how are they able to increase user engagement? So Spotify is known worldwide, but they have to compete. And I think like when Tencent Music goes public, it might impact their global sales, or at least in terms of paid subscription. Spotify had 160 million monthly active users at the end of 2017 and 71 million premium subscribers. All right, cool. So I'm pretty close. And I pay $10 a month. And honestly, I just like making playlists on Spotify. Sometimes the playlists they make are pretty cool. And I think that's kind of a competitive advantage they have is they're using big data to make these smart playlists, if you will. And people are, people are loving it, young people at least. Based on their S1, Spotify's revenue for 2017 was $4.1 billion. And okay. their net loss for 2017 was $1.2 billion. But just speaking to your valuation perspective, we're in a market where people don't really care too much about value or making sure that a profit is being made. It's more about growth. Historically, that's kind of the way things go at the height of bull markets is that people are just concerned about growth. And then in, in the bottom of bear markets, people are just concerned about value and uh, cash. So okay. what I'm saying is that even if a company's losing tons of money, the stock can still do phenomenally because if you look at Netflix, for example, the stock has absolutely gone bonkers over the last several years because they just keep growing. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think the last three years, streaming has been increasing sales in the music industry by like an average annual growth rate of 8%. And that's only going to get bigger because of the ubiquity of the technology and the more intuitive that they make their application in terms of implementing artificial intelligence and using big data to kind of make these customer-ready packaged goods of playlists and having more access in terms of to the artists because now they want to make, they have podcasts, they have videos. So they really want to make you spend time on Spotify. So I think that speaks to user growth and, and just overall growth, which actually is really interesting. You said that about the bear versus bull market. In a bear market, you focus is on value. And in a bull market, your focus is on growth. Do you think, how close to the tipping point are we in terms of the bull market? No idea. Although I will say that obviously it's really hard to prognosticate, but I will say that as the Fed has been raising short-term interest rates, 
we're getting closer and closer to an inverted yield curve, which has typically preceded recessions. Mm. So that does have me more on lookout for the end of this bull market to be coming at some point in time, if not organically, artificially through the Fed kind of forcing it. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. It's a confluence of factors, but like you, you hit the nail on the head. The Fed is very anti-invisible hand. They are a, a big, fat, visible hand. Well, since you mentioned about the Fed and them raising rates and short-term lending, I'm thinking about currency fluctuation because Spotify is they're a European company. Well, the way companies normally operate, if they're international companies, if most of their expenses are in, what are they, Swedish? Yeah. If most of their expenses are in Swedish krona, but their money coming in from revenue is in US dollars, what they would be doing is probably doing currency swaps. Oh, okay, okay. So that they could uh, fix the price or fix the rate at which they know they can count on getting krona from dollars. And that way they know what they have coming in and going out. Got it. All right, the way I wanted... The way I wanted to end this one was to just give you a more philosophical question. So in the context of Spotify doing their own IPO instead of going through the old boys club route of investment bank, just more general to ask you, do you think the barriers to entry to capital markets are being reduced and that it's enabling people to more easily raise money, start businesses, all that kind of stuff? I think that's a very important question. And I think you are seeing the barriers to enter the capital market being reduced, uh, especially with, with prospect of crowdsource funding. It's been really big lately in the last four or five years. Now you have the cryptocurrency hype, which on some level has a, a sense of practicality, but added on top of that, you have a lot of speculation. But I think that the general intent is there is to make financial services more accessible and brought in the base. So yes, I think the barrier to entries is, is, is lessening just because of where we are culturally with the technology, dissemination of information and, and, and creating these different means and platforms to get more people involved. Like velocity of money. Like if you have more people spending or contributing to the buying and the selling or just investing in startup costs for a business in general, then that could lead to growth. But then what we kind of touched upon earlier is if you have this type of ebb and flow with the bear versus bull market and, and how the invisible hand is not being fully honored with like increase of interest rates and, and how that will, in theory, slow down the rate of lending because the price of lending out money is, is going to increase. So, yeah, I mean, part of me just wants to say TBD, but another part of me wants to say that I think we've had good progress in these last three to five years. and broadening up the capital base for startups and, and uh, future entrepreneurs. Well, you know, for a capitalistic market to be optimally efficient, you would want as little barriers to entry to industries as possible so that you can encourage as much competition as possible because theoretically, if you have zero barriers to entry, then you're encouraging competition you enable competition to grow and compete 
And as we see from professional sports, for example, that competition begets quality. Yes, yes, that's true. And so quality in industry is obviously going to benefit the consumer in the end because not only are they going to get better quality, but at a lower price because customers want higher quality and lower price all the time. And so companies are always going to be competing for customers on that basis. So in a, just a theoretical sense, I think the ease of access to IPOs helps companies access capital and compete in our economy. So I think it's healthy for the economy and good for individuals that companies can swiftly grow and access capital and not be restricted to access to compete with other companies and compete with the bigger players because compliance and regulation makes it harder for new businesses to compete. That's what really restricts competition. Yeah, no, I think that's a great silver lining. It's like competition begets quality. And so when you have a market, it's really important to let as many people from an array of backgrounds just to help contribute to that further versioning of the global economy. Well, let's uh, go ahead and close this out. Was there any last thing you wanted to say? You know what my opinion with music is, though? Like, I like music as a tool for achieving world peace. It's like music and food. They're like practically two universal languages that anyone across the world can, can connect with. And so I would like to try to use or leverage the fact that people love music to help offer opportunities to open dialogue and discourse and break down biases and, you know, empowerment through knowledge. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, man, for sure, man. Thanks for show. having me. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>